to The Anthroposopher, where we bring anthroposophy to life through interviews, conversations, and explorations. I'm your host, Laura Scappatici. In this episode with Maureen Tolman Flannery, poet, threshold worker, and longtime friend of anthroposophy, we dive into poetry and explore the world through it, including the world of loss. This episode is being posted now because the Anthroposophical Society in America has its National Threshold Conference on Death and Dying, April 26th, 27th, and 28th in Ghent, New York. Please join us there. And stay tuned just after the episode for an extra poem from Maureen and some of her thoughts on the primal sound that humans make as it relates to poetry. Hi, Maureen. Hi, Laura. <laughs> How are you? I'm well. So um, today we're going to talk about Poetry. Poetry. Yes. My favorite subject. Excellent. So can you start out with a poem? I think yes. that'd be a great way to start today. Yes. This is a poem that I think as one of my more overtly anthroposophical poems. And it began um, with thinking about certain words and the meaning of those words. Um, so this is called Juncture. Zenith is that place in cosmic space directly above where you stand. A vector upright from the crown of your head straightway to the star raying grace so directly upon you there is no chance of its going astray. Zenith makes a lightning rod of the vertical body. Its height pulls you upright to your full stature, stretches you true as a plumb line, makes of you a harp string. Strung from a star down through your spine into the ground, this unseen line would reach the nadir, a point completely beneath. Connect the two and you are juncture, having at any moment counterpoles extending up through darkness into starlight and down through the grave density of rock to a fiery core. Consider the flaneur who goes always midway between upreaching heights and the deepest lows, imprinting on the streets the footfalls of his stroll from one to another of his haunts, wanting something he cannot name, meandering without observable purpose about the place where he stays, changing his course at the seeming whim of tree-born breezes that spew the pollen of blossoms into his path. Imagine now how he gyrates with his every bend and gesture, the great unseen line from his backbone that links the cosmos to the center of the earth. Mmm. So, that was fun. <laughs> yes. Wow. So yeah. you've got, so, so what were some of those words in there for you? I heard that zenith and nadir that they were speaking of for the children. I mean, mm. when, when you get to observe every once in a while a main lesson and you hear the teacher speaking of these things that they equate the children with, I thought, yes, what, what amazing concepts that yeah. your, your individual zenith and nadir. And then flaneur, I love that word because it, um, it's so... It's so French, and it's just a you know kind of a dandy, a man about town who, who just kind of walks around and uh, looks and good. So, yeah, yeah, looks good sometimes. <laughs> a flaneur is mm -hmm. that the word? Yes, yeah. flaneur. How do you spell it? F F L A N E U R. I think. Mm. It's Those French. are great yeah. words. Yeah. And this this word juncture in there too, yes. as the in between place mm -hmm. where. With the, the human the person body. Is. Yes. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so so maybe this kind of connects to your 
connection to anthroposophy, which I always mm-hmm. like to ask people their biography there, because uh, you mentioned Waldorf schools. Is that where you... Well, I did. I actually came to Anthroposophy and Waldorf at about the same time with a with a commitment to each one sort of separately and and in conjunction. I had a dear friend who who was a student of mine in a in a English class when I was in graduate school, and he was a seeker, so he um, he definitely. Uh, was seeing what was out there in the world, and he, after he spent some time in Spring Valley, he was the um, the godfather of my first child, and he said, you need a Waldorf school for this child. And I said, of course, what's a Waldorf school? And, and the rest is history, so um, <laughs> it was in the early years of, of, actually before we had a Waldorf school here in Chicago, but when um, the those who were beginning the um, the initiative uh, were starting to work together. So, fantastic. Yes. So you you came to it through that mm-hmm. seeker. You're right. It is at the same time then because you uh-huh. you've got someone that knows about anthroposophy and then introduces you to Waldorf and yes. then it's all right there. Mm-hmm. Then yeah. You, then you got to start studying to know what it's all about. Yes. So. Mm-hmm. And so were you writing poetry at that point when you were in grad school? Or? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I think I've always written poetry either in my head or, you know, some probably pretty horrible doggerel as a, as a young child. But uh, <laughs> yes, it's sort of been a life love. But I didn't uh, begin to to honor it or to publish until I was my children were grown. I was almost 50 before I started to publish. So um, I had a huge body of, of work to to work from and to, to send out and contribute before I actually um, started to, to publish. Well, that's great. That kind of takes the pressure off. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, you don't have to write as you go. You already have, you have this body that you've been building up over time, and you have four children. So that does get, afford you some time to uh, yes. <laughs> wait, to wait. <laughs> before you take action. So there were years of uh, something would come up in conversation. I'd say, wait, I have a poem about that. And then, you know, circling through this stack of... of um, dishonored papers to actually find the poem so it was it was wonderful to actually put things on on a computer in the early years of there being a computer and um and be able to to find what i wanted and Mm -hmm. submit to different anthologies and calls for submissions how many books eight eight wow okay i'm working on the ninth almost ready excellent Mm -hmm. excellent and so at the conference we were at together um we were at the sacred gateway conference in sacramento 2018 Mm -hmm. and um you brought poetry there and it really it changed the room people were so appreciative to have the poetry read because that doesn't happen that much in in people's lives ordinarily where they get to hear mm-hmm. a poet read their poems but, um you know like i think people sometimes they'll they'll hear it online or they'll read it but to have someone stand in front of them that wrote the poem and read it it's just such a, a beautiful thing what are your it, thoughts it was, on that and well, poetry in life and everyday life well there's a, a wonderful chicago um actor who was very valuable um in the history of of Chicago, he lived uh, to be almost a hundred, but he used to talk a lot about the vox humana, vox humana, the human voice and the importance. But poetry is meant to be heard, and it's sort of like the difference between a singer-songwriter or somebody covering. I think the poet should read their own work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, right. 
So, so you get to hear uh -huh. it from their own voice. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, that was very special so. for sure. So um, I, I have a question about your... I think people tuning in, I want to talk about this connection with anthroposophy, but what's your process? What's your writing process? And how has that changed over time? I mean, I'm just personally curious <laughs> as a, as a you know, ex-English major. <laughs> it's interesting because I write constantly. I'm very prolific, so I have thousands of poems. And um, I don't write on a regular basis. I don't sit down and say, today I'm going to write. So something comes to me, and it often comes with a with a question. I kind of liken it to the sand in the in the oyster. It's this a little bit of puzzlement, a bafflement, something that doesn't quite make sense, or or something that's um, that's just very fascinating. Mm -hmm. And and so I'll mull it over in in my mind, and often start with a a couple of lines. So I'm always working on a poem in my head before I ever sit down to, to paper. And then it helps if I can get a hold of a, a pen and a piece of paper before I lose, lose yes, right. those few lines. But I, I can come back. I, I'm in several workshops now. At this stage of my life, I don't feel like I, I can really um, stand behind a poem until I've workshopped it and... and worked with other poets who give me suggestions on just tweaking, fixing certain things. But basically, uh, the poem usually comes, you know, all at once, and uh, and then I can go back and work on things later. Mm -hmm. And I often find that the best process in perfecting a poem, not perfecting because it's never perfect, but um, in working on a poem is is in submitting to uh, to journals or to anthologies. Because every time I submit something, I'm often tweaking and changing a few things. So it's putting that attention there that gives you a chance to, to stand back and look at it again and see if it's exactly what you, mm -hmm. you wanted to say or, or what wanted to be said through you. So I, I do feel like there is a, a definite spiritual quality. There is a, there is a muse. And, uh, and I... Uh, one thing that's been very clear to me that since I began to uh, to take that, for me, a huge step of of calling myself a poet, of actually honoring these scraps of paper that I used to um, scribble on on the backs of uh, deposit slips or something, uh -huh. um, that in in doing that, I was uh, opening the door, I think, to to this to the muse because I. I didn't disregard it any longer, so I, I don't ever lose a poem anymore. You know, there there were long periods of my life where I would write a lot. You know, you'd have a baby, and there'd be so much inspiration, and and I would write so much around a, a birth or a, a huge event or some some horrific story that I heard or something. But I think a lot of things that were coming into my head just got dismissed. And that doesn't happen anymore. So I, I do think that uh, that it is a give and take with with the muse, and um, that is, I, I think, the muse is is the this your own spirit guides and the dead that that I think really want to be mm. want to be honored and listened to. So I, I feel like they're they're working in my poems. Yeah, and and that's that's a great like you said you named it you named yourself it and mm -hmm. you said yes this is me and and now 
And it's different. Yes, yes. It has this uh-huh. different quality, and it's with you, and the and, beings helping you are with uh-huh. you. Yeah. Yes. So and, go ahead. And yeah. I think for young people with, who really know who they are at a younger stage, that doesn't necessarily have to be that way. But because I, I was much older before I took myself seriously as a poet, I think uh, that was more noticeable for me. Right. Like you had to make a decision uh-huh. about it. Yes. Yeah, you had to c- claim it. Uh-huh. Yeah, so it would keep showing up. And a, an interesting uh, thing that a, a good friend of mine, I, I would always read my poems to to friends and family when, when the subject came up in the conversation. It was, oh, so let me just, you know, let me just tell you what I wrote about that topic because had something about, <laughs> said something about everything, right? Right. So um, when I started to uh, send away um, poems, um, it used to be that uh, that you would put it in a, a sassy, a self-addressed stamped envelope, send the poem back and um, away, and then you would get the response back in that envelope. And I, I was saying to her, who she was a therapist, um, I was saying that, it's so exciting for me now to to see my name on the envelope and know that that's a response about my poems, and it doesn't really matter if it's an acceptance or a rejection. Uh, it's just uh, I, I just love this doing this thing that I hadn't done for so long. And she said, "Well, that's obvious." I said, "Oh, it is." She said, "Yes, now you're in dialogue with the world about your work, and that's what's so that's what's so fulfilling to you, even." Either they accept it or they don't, but but you're in that process, and and that was so true, of course. Wow, <laughs> that's so true. So, that's um, such a great yeah. uh, thing to hold on to as an artist, right? Yes. Like uh-huh. you're in dialogue. dialogue. Mm-hmm. So, so do you want to read another poem? I would love to. Okay. I would love to. Let's see. Hmm. Do you want me to read the one you liked about the secret uh, sadness? I love that one. Okay. <laughs> um, Thank you. This is a, this is a poem that came sort of all at once at one fell swoop, and you'll uh, the poem is very clear about um, what what it's about and why it, why it came at that particular time. These are heartfelt couplings, the last few chances for our mingling flesh to draw some uncalculated factor into the already complex equation. My dwindling power to call forth independent life is balanced to those early years when I, a new wife, fecund as a rumor, bore you more than we had bargained for. Now one son in the rutting season of first romance can smell love the way a coyote noses wool's lanolin born on a timber wind with a hundred other scents. And our daughter, last born, stands already at the rim of womanhood like a hang glider waiting for the right gust to carry her airborne upon the future. And we know each other's bodies as our own. They're only surprised the periodic rise of new keratoses, brown and scaly, as though we would slowly kiss each other back into toads. Each time now, I assure you, I could not conceive. Then again, I flow through one more moontide, my body clinging to fertility like a weather-beaten farmer, reluctant to give over his fields. A tender and blessed love thrives in the darkness while our unconscious collaboration with the gods is waning like a harvest moon. But as we thrust toward fearless years of reckless loving, this, their courses in us both, in lieu of lush fluids of fertility, a secret sadness, 
No more amber-haired babies will hover like seabirds, poised to descend and trouble the waters we enter. The last of our lovely ones have been remembered into life. The no more formless unborns tread starlight beyond the hard matter of our love, hoping to catch us off guard. Mm. Such an amazing poem. <laughs> what did you say? Very a fecund uh, as a rumor. As a rumor. <laughs> fecund as a rumor. Oh, yeah. And the amber, amber-haired babies <laughs> and the un- unbornness. I mean, maybe that can take us into the next yes, discussion I'm or the next poem. Very um, conscious of unbornness. Um, could you say what that is? Because I think some people listening, you know, that's a, it's a very yes. provocative word. Mm-hmm. Um, unbornness, yes. for sure. I think, um, well, it is. it refers to those individuals who are um, ready to incarnate uh, again and have, have completed this arc of, of work in the spiritual world from the past, um, previous death and, and the life in the, between death and rebirth, and are ready. This wonderful idea that these, um, not an idea, but a reality that these individuals who are who are trying to be conceived actually worked on on connecting the grandparents and the and definitely the parents that they want to come into the world through so so that there are no no coincidences when it comes to the the spiritual realities of giving birth and so the last of our lovely ones have been remembered into life is this uh, this kind of claiming, claiming the history before you actually meet that child that, that wants to come into the world through, through you and the privilege of it, to honor the, the privilege of being able to be that conduit for another soul. Such a privilege. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you hear, I hear all the spiritual pieces <laughs> a- through your work. Have you ever had an experience where... Like just something unusual like that where where the muse is like, you know, hits you or like <laughs> you have to sit down <laughs> because you're struck by it or I don't know, anything. Have you had anything with, like that with your writing? Um, well, you know, I think all, all the time there's this little moment of, oh, yes, that does need to, that does need to be a poem. Mm-hmm. Um, this one is also a poem that centers around a word, but it's the actual visual, if you can picture the word if, that it's made of that I and the, the F, which is actually this bent over gesture of the, of the letter itself. So if the pin upon which it all hinges turns unbiased attention to every contingency, entertains improbable prospects, and embraces those faced-off adversaries' hope and debilitating fear... If that unlikely atlas of a bold, hunched-over little word hoists on its emaciated shoulders the unwieldy weight of all possible worlds, expectation hangs out around it with motivations disguised by a cryptic smile, apprehension vies for if's affections with wide-eyed anticipation, if hasn't decided what to give you, your worst nightmare or the coming in of that ship you thought forever adrift. Mm. So that if can can give you the, all the possibility of the world, and in this this wonderful gesture of awe 
Or if some, for some people, if it's so fearful, you know, for some people, if can be, oh my goodness, if, if this happens or if that happens, that, so, um, that, that was one of those things where, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of possibility in if. Right, and that word just kind of glowed to uh, you. It sounds yes, like right. it was like, hello, <laughs> there's a poem in me. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I think that that word if can sort of lead us into this, the threshold work you do. Because mm-hmm. I think, you know, when, sometimes when people are struck by the word if, it's like if someone dies, yeah, if yes. they, and we all know that's not actually yeah, an if. Right. It's not an if. Uh, the timing mm-hmm. is where the if may be. Mm-hmm. But um, so... Was there a poetry connection to that? How did you get to that? I mean, I know, I know you have poems mm-hmm. about it, so we can we can get there at some point. But maybe tell us the segue yeah. into your. Well, it was actually my sister's work um, with an um, elder care facility called Anamkara, where individuals in the last in a series of years, uh, in preparation for their aging and death. Um, were cared for in a place that honored death itself, so that when they died, they would be, they would also be able to to have the wake in the same home, and their um, their roommates and uh, partners would come in and um, care for the body and wake the uh, the individual or have the vigil there in the home. So it was a, a living that honored the process of preparation for death. And I was on her board for 20 years. Um, that she, she was in Denver and Boulder and, and still is and still does, um, does the work with the, on the threshold. But after my mother passed and my father both, I, I was very enamored of the, the work with actually taking care of, of the body. As a Christian community member, I think that's something that we do so well, and uh, I think the Christian community has had a strong influence on the home funeral uh, movement. Um, and so, and I, just so I, people right. don't know, the Christian community is the movement for religious renewal. When you know Rudolf Steiner so was approached by uh, a people, priests. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. priests, and he's, they said, "Well, what what do we do here?" And he said, "Well, here, here, let's renew, so. let's do mm-hmm. a renewal here." So, so that's that was a connection. So you already had that connection. You had this connection to your sister's work, mm-hmm. and, then... and so I decided that I I wanted to do that work. And and basically, uh, what a what a home funeral guide does is is just educate and encourage, empower families and individuals to take care of their own, which usually can be anything from from just assisting to to washing the body and having a a home vigil um, for any any time between one and three days before the the body is interred or cremated so so um that's something that I'm very interested in, but I also tend to write a lot of poems about mm-hmm. about death yeah, so mm-hmm. maybe maybe we can hear one of those. I would imagine you've been how many oh, people have yeah. you helped well I think um from just the wakes that I've attended um at uh, at the church um probably you know not more than a few dozen but mm-hmm. um just the caring is I'm yeah. I'm very new to the actual yeah. work of, of doing the, the body the care mm-hmm. yeah yeah yes. so uh I think people are so thankful to have a person there that isn't afraid and is 
um, just so thoughtful and sees the, sees the beauty of the transition. It allows other mm-hmm. people to see it. Yes, right? I, I think when you can uh, sort of lead the way into the normalization of this is, is just the last bit of care that you can give to this person that you've cared for so much throughout their life. Um, and for me, that's the greatest gift to both to the dead, but to those who are, uh, who are beginning the mourning process and beginning to come to terms with the, with the loss is just that, that realization that this is very normal and, um, a gift. It's and the gift is often one that that the dead definitely give back because it. Uh, people speak very eloquently about how um, how much they've received from being in the in the presence of the dead in mm. this in this time of a vigil. So mm. um, it's actually very very important for all of us to mm-hmm. just. To, Get used to the idea. I'm going to be there. You're going to be there. We'll, we can do yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. We can all take care of each other. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering so, about those gifts during those days, and I don't know well, what that looks. I've heard. What, I've heard of after. You know, like people. You know, you like you said that the dad. You know, the belief system in anthroposophy is that the dead are working with us, or whispering mm-hmm. in our ears. They're getting us to our destiny. They're, they help us, right? Yes. Um, yes, and know. that's the thing. The first thing that you would think of that that we're talking about that kind. No, I was really referring to the gift, which usually is someone saying, "I, I saw my grandmother when she was, you know, in the coffin, and I was very ill at ease about being around her, or I was afraid of." of being in the presence of a body or I thought it, that it was all weird and strange and only the professional should take care of it. So usually the gift of being in the presence of the body is that, that feeling of this is, this is fine. I, you know, I, I am praying or telling stories or I am, I'm reading uh, scripture for, for this person's soul. And yet I'm right here with the, with the physical matter that they are in the process of abandoning mm-hmm. and um it's fine you know i'm not scared i'm not uncomfortable so th- that's the kind of gift that the people received of just um this is all okay you know right and and i'm going to be uh, i'm going to be all right i can do this right know? right and i can be mm-hmm. present here and yes. and i'm sure it just makes you more comfortable with your own death yes. like the idea of your own death to mm-hmm. see like when you die, someone will take care of you, and and people will be around, and it'll be beautiful. Uh, the setting will be beautiful, and yeah, you you become more comfortable. I would think I would become more comfortable. Why don't you? Is there? Um, I have this one. Thoughts of the dead. The unrealized ideas of the dead blow like a wind through trees beyond our bed, sprinkle the night with aspirations not our own and spice our love with the desire of the disembodied. They fertilize our sleep like worker bees, their feet fluorescent with the pollen of another place and time. They perch like birds on the wire edge of our waking, singing subliminal songs until we rise and set about doing the work the dead can no longer do. So that that's about the gift that we give to the dead in in completing those projects and taking care of the things that they weren't able to to complete in in the physical world and um, but I, I try 
very hard not to to speak of spirit so overtly that that it's um kind of sandwiched into mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the the ideas are sandwiched into images of about the the world the world itself yeah well it's all integrated it's like it's not a separation of spirit and material like you you just flow it all (laughs) together I mean actually it is all together yes but we be so easily separated do you want to read another I would like to I would like to how about this one that's also about death but it's not um there's nothing about death in the poem it this is a poem of that is a complete uh, metaphor for the process of of relinquishing and letting go of sometimes things or um, abilities and mm-hmm. um, sometimes faculties and all of those things that um, that make it easier to cross the threshold. It's it's that ancient Cohen. If we don't die before we die, we die when we die. And so it's that those little deaths of letting go of many things that the, that those who live a long um, full life are able to to accomplish um, and of course sometimes this is not possible when when we when we die immediately and don't have time for preparation but this one was for my father who was able to let go of many things before before he passed the birdman's release one hot tropical afternoon the birdman walks to the shed where his wares are singing jungle music in handmade bamboo cages built to stack one upon another from floor to cielo. With palsied fingers, he fumbles to unlatch each diminutive door and stands erect as his bent spine allows, while tiny gems of quetzal blue, emerald and ruby, hover above him, chirping instructions for flight. All birds, once released, perch on his shoulders and arms, sink needle talons into the loose weave of his shabby muslin shirt and flap fluorescent rainbows of synchronized wings, lifting him above the lean-to where they once confined each other. Wind plays the Andean flutes of his airy bones, and his slack skin flaps like prayer flags in a gentle breeze. Young men working in nearby fields glance up to see him, coloring the clouds with his ascent. Mm. So it is those birds, all those things that he turns loose that just carry him off (laughs) into the clouds (laughs) yeah and I mean you you have this beautiful smile on your face at this image of of him being carried away and you know when he passed away was it was it how was it for you did did you already have that smile with you at that at that time yes you did Uh uh-huh my sister says in the the uh the Irish greeting that that people use their entire life in the old Celtic world was Bashona, may you have a good death. <laughs> and so this is something people live with every day. Instead of good morning, I say, may you have a good death. <laughs> and so my father definitely had a good death. He had a wonderful death. Um, I, can I read you about um, uh, my father's interment? Yes. Because his interment was so beautiful. I have a whole book of poems about um, the process, my father's dying process, and um, and this his beautiful death. But but this one is about the um, the actual interment, which it was I, I like to say that it's kind of pictured 
picture the old Wild West where the cowboys dug a hole in the ground and wrapped the fellow cowboy in a sheet and lowered him into the ground, sort of like that. Take Me to the Green Valley, which is uh, an allusion to that poem, Bang the Drum Slowly and Play the Fife Slowly. Play the Fife Slowly. We made his coffin out of soft white pine, long boards for the side scored to bend into wide-shouldered contours of the old shape. Lines of grain accented knots of deep earth brown, like eyes of the old pine looking out to its utility. It had holes in the bottom for the ground to enter when the snows melt to run off. We burned on the top the horizon silhouette of the mountain he could see from his bed, and sheep on the range, and an old sheep wagon with off-center door like the one he called home as a boy. On the end board, we burned a leaping trout about to grab at the hand-tied fly on his line. On the sides, rough designs of all the wildlife of his wild life. For handles, we picked six horseshoes from an old oil bucket behind the barn, rusted, worn, encrusted in the grooves with manure and mountain mud. We screwed them into strips of cowhide marked with his brand, Lazy M Inverted T Bar fastened to the coffin three on a side. And for planting him down like a seed into new plowed ground, we used lassos, three of them, each at least 15 feet. Six grandchildren at the sides of the hole slowly unwound the ropes. Wow, so. these images of, <laughs> yeah, like the, the, the horseshoes and the leather and, and the children with yeah, the, oh, with the ropes. just amazing. It was wonderful. We called ahead, because it was December, and we called ahead to the small town cemetery and said, we want a hole, no astroturf, no anything else, just a nice square hole and with the dirt next to it. And so it, um, people who weren't used to it said, Oh my gosh, it's so beautiful to actually see the coffin going slowly. And, you know, because they often ask you to leave the cemetery before they lower the body and everything. Right. It was just so nice to just lower him down on the ropes and throw his cowboy hat and all the flowers in on top. Oh, that's so good, because that gives you that that final moment. It gives you that closure of, like, there, now you are resting. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, yeah. What about anthroposophy and what about poetry are important for the world right now? Why are, why are these things so needed? I think with anthroposophy, it's very clear that as the world becomes more and more materialistic, to be aware that matter is spirit and spirit has a material component and that just I think just an awareness that the spirit world really is there to be um, to be asked to be gotten in touch with again, and uh, and that the dead are actually interested in the workings of the world and want to be want to be remembered and want to be asked to to be part of our lives. Um, I think it's essential in in this time even more than in, in Rudolf Steiner's time. Because we've gone a, a long way towards materialism um, in the last century, even though we've also made great strides in, in awareness. And so there's wonderful things being done. And poetry, 
Well, I think Rudolf Steiner was definitely a poet. Um, yes. And his really his mantras are, you know, each these wonderful poems. But the value of, of word. I mean, the the logos is 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 word, and so I have ultimate ultimate faith in the value of words. And of course, that that same faith can break your heart when you think that the right words in the right place are going to make the difference and they they don't always and the thing you think if you could just say this thing to that person it would change everything and, and of course it doesn't always but there's so many more things to be to be considered and it's infinitely more complex than we realize but words are important and i think it's a time when poetry uh, is needed more than ever to uh, to soften the edges of of reality and and also to give us the the images the pictures that make uh, that say profoundly what prose fumbles at at saying thank you so much <laughs> for talking with us today and thank you thank for you. your beautiful poetry where do we get it we oh. get it in various sources in we various can reach sources. out to you okay you can reach out to me you can find um, some of my books at Puddinhead Press. Puddinhead uh, Press. Puddinhead Press. Mm-hmm. Um, P-U-D-D-I-N apostrophe head press. press. Yes, uh-huh. great. Yeah, you can. I don't have a website, but you can Google Maureen Tolman Flannery, and I have a huge Google presence because a lot of the journals that uh, where the poems appear are are accessible. Well, we know where to find you now. Yeah. You, okay. you and your muse. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Bye. joining us today on The Anthroposopher. Stay tuned for our next episode. Is there anything else that you wanted to say that you didn't get to say? Yes. Yes. I have have one thing that I would like to say. Okay. Do you want me to ask you a question about it or you can just say it? Maybe I'll just say it. Just go for it then. I can't remember who said it, but I I listened to a lecture once where um, someone was talking about the primal human sound being a grief wail. And I thought, that's very interesting and very profound. If anyone were to ask me, um, I, I think that it is the opposite. I think the primal human sound, and we hear it from a child who is beginning to speak, the primal sound is an awe. It's a, it's a wonderment. And, and I think poetry always originates in that awe gesture to the world. Awe, it's so beautiful I can hardly stand it. Or, oh, how, how can this be? Mm-hmm. Um, this is, is so, so wrong that I need to try to make some sense of it, or at least I need to, to document a, a wrong or an injustice. Um, so that awe can really encompass um, everything that we encounter. And um, I do think that it's a basic human response to, to the world. And um, my poetry, and I think a lot of poetry, really comes from that gesture of awe, which is then morphs immediately into praise or exploration of the 
the puzzlement and bafflement. Okay. I'm glad you said that because, yeah, poetry, it, it is like a, I mean, it's a spiritual reading. It's, it's so, like you said, it's so different than prose. It's not, you, you can't read poetry without having some kind of soul feeling around it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, yes. it's different than reading instructions or even reading, I mean, I think, I think amazing novels do this, but poetry in itself is just a totally different thing and it has that ah oh, mm-hmm. in yes. it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, thanks. And here's one last poem. Death by Poetry. When they opened her up, she was riddled with alliterative lines. They didn't even try to transcribe. They just sewed her up again and sent her home. Three months later, in the spring of the year, she died of poems, her body alive with them. Protest poems in her spleen, holy psalms of praise in folds of her brain's gray matter. Love lyrics pulsing residual rhythm through both oracles of her enlarged heart. Arteries clogged with blockage. Her lungs so cloudy with misted images, each breath must have been a labor. Her breasts hard as on the third day when the milk comes in, engorged with poems she could not let down. Benign syllables in situ, tight cyclic haiku, ruptured confessional poems spilling infectious mixed metaphor into her abdominal cavity. An ectopic sonnet that could not gestate, poised in bursti- to burst the tube that stretched in holding in its will to life. Parasitic poems plagiarized and feeding on the good bacteria. One last magnificent poem, almost spoken, lodged in her throat like a piece of steak. Say only that she died of beauty undigested like rough rubies, and we need only read her death to be gifted of it all. <laughs>